following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Good morning. Last week, Tim preached on one of the fire and brimstone passages in Hebrews, and I'm, I'm glad that he took that one, and I've got the easier one that follows up. Um, today we'll be looking at Hebrews 10:32 through 39. But recall the former days in which, after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. So when we read this passage, we see and we hear about a group of people that have faced many challenges. We shouldn't be surprised when we have those challenges in our lives. Just look at Job 5.7. People are born for trouble as readily as sparks fly up from a fire. It's not encouraging words. However, we have strength through Christ that we can get through those trials. We are not shielded from suffering. However, our shield, Jesus who empowers us, is greater than any trial or tribulation we could face. The author of Hebrews starts out with the word remember or recall, depending on your translation. Verse 32 But what about the former days should be recalled or remembered? First, he's calling us to remember God's grace. He starts out with being illuminated. Now, he wasn't saying these people glowed in the dark. They had an understanding of the truth of the gospel message. They were believers. We need to always remember God's former grace in our lives, not to forget it. Remember it and meditate upon it. We as humans and our failings are so prone to forget how God has over and over demonstrated his grace and mercy to us that the author is exhorting the hearers to remember how God has acted in their lives. We read about this when we went through Exodus. Over and over, God demonstrated his power and his grace to the people of Israel, but yet... They forgot over and over. We need to remember that God's grace often shines brightest when our circumstances or our troubles are the darkest. Does it ever strike you as interesting as we read Scripture, not just this passage but other passages, that it calls upon us to remember, remember how God has acted, remember how he has been faithful, remember how his grace has been extended to us, how he's extended mercy to us. But yet, we call upon God to forget. To forget 
the times we sin, the times that we have been disobedient. The word illuminated here is to be or become understanding, conceived of as having light cast upon oneself. The Greek word photizo is to give light or to enlighten. As I mentioned, these were true believers, whether they were baby Christian believers, as we've gone through Hebrews, we've read about that, or they were strong in their faith, these people were true followers of Christ. Each of us should think back on how God has demonstrated grace and mercy to us as we have gone through the trials in our lives. We should also remember how we've overcome those trials. The writer in verses 26 to 31 gave a warning not to frighten us, but to remind us, to remind the readers of a better way of living. Remember the times that God has carried us through the trials. Too often we Christians become comfortable when things are going smoothly. Tough times can often bring that special bond of solidarity under danger. Tough days for the gospel brings Christians together. Days of ease often result in the opposite. When I was in Iraq, for those that don't know my background, I was military for 32 years total between uniform and civilian and I was in Iraq in 2005. And there's a special bond and brotherhood when you're deployed in that type of environment because everybody needs to do their job and they need to do it well because people's lives are on the line. If you don't make sure your weapon is clean or your gas mask or whatever, if you're packing parachutes for the pilots, people's lives can be lost because you took the easy route. There's that bond and that togetherness. The same thing in the Christian life is we go through tough times. We should do it together, not as individuals, to support each other. Think about the picture, the footprints in the sand I'm sure all of us have seen. We think God wasn't with us at those times, but yet those were the times that God carried us through that storm. Think back to the early church, the first three centuries Satan attacked the church from the outside. Stephen and James were the first of the two high-profile victims. Initially, the greatest persecutors were the unbelieving Jews, and later it was the Romans. Paul and Peter were both put to death by Nero. The early church suffered ten different periods of persecution from ten different emperors, starting with Nero in AD 54, until Diocletian in 305. Yet during these periods of persecution, the church grew and the faith was strengthened. Now, once Constantine became the emperor, things changed. There's some very interesting articles on Constantine out there. Constantine made Christianity the state religion once he unified the Roman Empire, and the persecution ended. He even made life easy for the church, especially the clergy, who no longer needed to pay taxes, serve in the military, and they received a healthy salary. Constantine's changes made being the clergy a life of luxury, not a life of service. How does this compare with 2 Timothy 2.3? I could go into detailed description of Constantine, but I, I don't think we need to go down that trail too far. There's some 
very interesting theories that Satan couldn't defeat the church from the outside, but by using Constantine, he was able to weaken the church from the inside because Constantine allowed compromise and pagan beliefs to enter into Christianity. We also need to remember as we go through these trials, it's about God's glory and not about how we made it through because we didn't make it through without God. No matter what the circumstances are, it's about God's glory. Let's look at Psalm 115.1. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory because of your mercy and because of your truth. Have any of us in this room ever been mocked or ridiculed for our faith? What is our reaction when that happens? I think the better question to ask is, what should our reaction be? Let's look at Acts chapter 5, verses 40 to 42. And they agreed with him, and when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So here the apostles were brought before the Sanhedrin. They were beaten. They were told, don't do this anymore. And what did they do? It's almost like when we have children, they do things we tell them not to do. But in this case, it's positive. They continued being obedient to the call of spreading the gospel, and they rejoiced that they suffered and they identified with Christ. We also need endurance. We need endurance to stand strong and overcome. The Christian life is not a sprint. Instead, we need to view it as a marathon that will have challenging sections along the way. We will all likely face our heartbreak hill as we live our Christian life. Endurance requires focus. In verse 33, we read that they faced public ridicule and persecution. The Greek word theatrizo, from which we get our word theater, and we think of it in a positive sense. However, the original meaning was to bring upon the stage to set forth as a spectacle that doesn't sound encouraging and to expose to contempt. These Christians were exposed to many persecutions. They faced wild beasts in the amphitheater. They were sawed in half for their faith. They were tortured. In the case of former Jews who became Christians, it was by reproaches and afflictions from their fellow Jews. And the Greek word for reproaches means to rebuke or to revile. This is not gentle. It refers to bitter invectives that were hurled at the Jews for nothing or for turning against Judaism and becoming Christians. The second thing the author wants us to see is that even when the Christians were not the direct object of attack, they identified with the abuse of those who were being attacked. They identified with the pain and suffering. And in doing so, they subjected themselves to that same suffering. 
yet they found it a privilege to share in the suffering for being a Christian and standing for their faith. The Roman historian Tacitus, born in the middle of the first century, expressed the feelings of many of his fellow citizens when he called the church a deadly disease and accused Christians of hatred of the human race. As we look at today in Christianity and some of the hot point discussions, same-sex marriage, homosexuality, when we make a stand for the truth of God's word, we're called intolerant and hateful. Nothing has changed in two centuries of Christian life. There have been times when those to whom this letter was written had experienced fierce opposition to their beliefs. When they had first become Christians, they had known persecution and plundering of their goods, and they had learned what it was to become involved with those who were under persecution. They had met that situation gallantly and with honor, and now they were in danger of drifting away. The writer to Hebrews reminds them of their former loyalty. They need to remember and focus. It is a truth of light that in many ways it is easier to stand adversity than to stand prosperity. Comfort has ruined far more people in their faith than trouble ever did. Speaking from experience, I know when I'm going through seasons where everything seems like it's running smoothly, it's easy to get complacent. It's easy to spend less time in the Word. It's easy to spend less time in prayer. But that's the most dangerous thing that we could do. The classic example is what happened to the armies of Hannibal. Hannibal of Carthage was the one general in history who had routed the Roman legions. But winter came, and the campaign had to be put on hold. Hannibal wintered his troops in Capua, which he had captured and which was a city of luxury second only to Rome. And one winter in Capua did what the Roman legions had failed to do in all their battles. The luxury so sapped the morale of the Carthaginian troops that when spring came, the campaign was resumed and they were unable to stand up to the Romans. Comfort had ruined them when struggle had only strengthened them. It is often true in our Christian walk. It is often the case that people are able to meet the great hours of testing and trial with honor. And yet they allow the times of plain sailing to sap their strength and weaken their faith. The appeal of the writer to the Hebrews is one that could be made to us all. In effect, he says, be what you were at your very best. If only we were at our best, wouldn't life be very different? Christianity does not demand the impossible. But if we were always as honest, as kind, as encouraging, and as courteous as we could be, life would be quite different. But to be like that, we need certain things. First, we need to always keep our hope in sight. Athletes will make a great effort because the goal at the end beckons them. They will submit to the discipline of training because of the end. If life is only a day-to-day matter of routine things, 
we may, well, we may well sink into a policy of drifting. But if we're on the way to heaven's crown, our efforts must always be the very best that we can offer. We need fortitude. Perseverance is one of the great unromantic values. Most people can start well. Almost everyone can keep going sporadically. To everyone at, one, at some time or another, we can rise to great heights when challenges come our way. As if we had wings, we rise above those challenges. In the moment of the great effort, everyone can run and not be weary. But the greatest gift of all is to walk on steadily and not to faint, to keep going. We need the memory of the end. That may sound like a contradiction, but we need to know and understand where we're going. The writer to the Hebrews quotes a passage from Habakkuk 2.3. The prophet tells his people that if they hold fast to their loyalty, God will see them through their present situation. The victory comes to only to those who hold on. To the writer of Hebrews, life was a journey that made its way to the presence of Christ. It was therefore never something that could be allowed to drift. It was its end which made the process of life all important. And only those who endured to the end would be saved. It's a summons never to be less than our best. And always to remember that the end comes. All of us will face death. If life is the road to Christ, no one can afford to miss it or to stop halfway. Endurance requires effort. None of this is easy. The word struggle here is referring to an athletic contest. And anyone who has been involved in playing or coaching knows that sporting events are not easy. This is especially true if the opponents are equally matched, or worse yet, you're the underdog. It often takes great effort and will to never give up that can make the difference between victory and defeat. When Kyung and I lived in Okinawa, I coached youth football, American football, for four years. It was Pop Warner for those that are familiar with that. So it was nine to 12 year old kids, full pads. We played eight game season. I coached four years. The first year we lost the championship and we won three straight. But when I think back, I contrast the team that I had in the second year and the team in the fourth year. It kind of follows along what we're talking about here. The team that I had in the second year was so talented, it was almost not fair. Um, Eight-game season, we scored 242 points, and for math majors, that's 30 points a game in eight-minute quarters. So the games were much shorter than professional or college. We had seven shutouts. In five games, we mercy-ruled the opponent. Three games, we did not give up a first down the entire game, and we did not punt the entire season. And we ran the ball, and on the season, we averaged over 11 yards a carry. Not just a game, but on the season, running the ball. This team was extremely talented. But the one game, they came out, they didn't have their focus. They didn't have their game face on. And we made more mistakes, mental mistakes, than we did the entire season combined. And it was a one game that we lost, 
22 to 19 in the last minute. And the kids were crushed. They're crying after the game. It was the sixth game of the season. And I just told them, I said, you know, in life, we all will face those times we get knocked down. The question is, what are you going to do? Are you going to stay down there? Or are you going to get back up and keep going? They got back up in the last two games. We won 41 to nothing and 41 to nothing. Um, I contrasted the team I had in the fourth year. Not as talented. But they had that certain it factor. Eight-game season, we didn't lose a game. There were games we were behind, and they never gave up. They just kept digging and fighting, and they just pushed through. Even after the semifinal game, one of my starting running backs and starting safety came up, and he's like, Coach, I'm going to miss the championship game next week. And you think the first reaction is like, oh, my goodness, no. So I just asked him, like, why are you not going to be there? Well, there's a youth retreat from the chapel, and I'm going to go to that so I can't make it to the game. And I told him, that's the right decision. God should come first. Your family, school, football should be fourth or less. And what's neat about that story is the kid that filled in for him at running back in the championship game scored the winning touchdown. We weren't just individuals. We were a team that fought through every bit of adversity that came our way. They had the endurance and they put out the effort to go that entire season. We'll look at verse 34. They joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property. I don't know about you, but if somebody came up to me and said, I'm going to go into your house today and I'm going to take all your possessions and your car and you can go to the street, I really don't think I'll be joyful. I would probably be anything but joyful. But yet this group of people acted joyfully. We don't know if this was talking about the eviction of the Jews from Rome in AD 49 or AD 64 or even maybe the persecution in 66, 70. We're not sure. But it involved the confiscation of their possessions. We have to understand that at various times in the first century, the Jews were publicly abused and after being evicted, their homes were looted and their property was taken. Look at Acts 18, 1 and 2. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. So it wasn't just a theory, the Jews were expelled. But here, here is joyful acceptance of losing their possessions describes a spiritual condition by which one sees and celebrates greater realities than those immediately observable. If we've lost our stuff, we would only be focused on the here and now. This group was focused on what was coming later. The hearers had joy in the midst of their persecution because they knew that better and lasting possessions were promised them by virtue of their identification with Jesus and his church. Next, endurance requires doing God's will. Have you ever noticed if you fall outside and you're not following God's will closely, it becomes harder. It's difficult. You start to waver and drift. But when we're focused on God and we're focused on walking with him and doing his will, it's easier. These fears extended their love to those in prison. 
It was common for Christians to be imprisoned for their faith at that time. At that time, Judaism was a legal religion. It was recognized by Rome, but Christianity was not. The hearers sympathized with those in prison. And it talks about communicating the idea of being affected by the same suffering, the same impressions, the same emotions as another person. And often those in prison received food only if someone brought them their food. They showed compassion to their fellow Christians who were incarcerated. They put their compassion into action by rendering aid to someone in dire circumstances. By doing this, they also subjected themselves to the same harsh treatment. So when they provided this, they identified themselves as Christians, and often they were then arrested themselves, or they would lose their possessions. We think about the end of Matthew 25, 36, and Jesus is talking, I was in prison and you came to me. They were exhibiting doing God's will. Now, I hope you're all ready for the fire hose, because God's will, a lot of us struggle with, what's God's will for, our, for my life? Well, instead, we should ask, what is God's will? And there are dozens of passages in Scripture that describe God's will. John's Gospel, Jesus came to do the Father's will, 434, to raise up on the last day all whom the Father gave the Son, 639, that all believe in the Son, 629, answered prayers related to doing God's will, 931, in the Synoptic Gospels, doing God's will is crucial. Doing God's will makes one brother and sister with Jesus. It is not God's will for any to perish. Calvary was the Father's will for Jesus. In Paul's letters, the maturity and service of all believers. Believers delivered from this evil age. God's will was his redemptive plan. Believers experience in living the spirit-filled life. Believers filled with the knowledge of God. Believers made perfect and complete. Believers sanctified. Believers giving thanks in all things. That means not just the good times, but the bad times. Peter's letters. Believers doing right, submitting to civil authorities, and thereby silencing the foolish men. Believers suffering. 1 Peter 3.17 and 4.19. Believers not living self-centered lives. 1 Peter 4.2. And in John's letters, believers abiding forever. And believers, key to answered prayer. When we walk in God's will, our prayers are answered. And two events would happen if the readers displayed this staying power. First, they would be able to do the will of God. And second, they would receive the benefit of God's promises that Scripture talks about. Spiritually mature Christians understand that God's strength will take them through the adversity. They trust that God will provide them his glorious promises because he is dependable and trustworthy. Endurance results in receiving God's promises. The promises are not the here and now that the prosperity gospel lies would have us to believe. It is not that we're going to be rich, some of us may be. It's not that we're going to have perfect health. 
We look at Paul praying for the thorn to be removed from his side. Anybody who thinks Paul didn't have extremely strong faith, I think you need to read that again. But yet, what was the answer? My grace is enough. My grace is sufficient. The reason they could endure such events is they kept an eschatological eye towards God's future promises. Not here, but later. They knew that they had a better and lasting possession. Their heavenly possessions are described as being better and lasting. Their eschatological reward is better. The author of Hebrews repeatedly through the epistle uses these words to demonstrate that the heavenly realities are far superior to anything that we could receive here and now. The hearers were focused on what was coming, not their current situation. Good verse 35. The confidence of the believers had caused them to endure much suffering. Still, the author is encouraging them. I think there's a message here. As fellow believers, when we see somebody going through struggles, even though they may have gone through struggles before, we should never cease praying for them, encouraging them. We are to come alongside them and lift them up. The author has encouraged them not to throw away their confidence, which will result in their great reward. They were already receiving a reward for their steadfastness, yet they would receive the greater reward in the future. God's goodness, goodness and faithfulness makes their rewards certain. In many ways, the message here sounds like the message that was given to the seven churches in Revelations 2 and 3. The key is endurance, which leads to boldness and results in the reward. And this only happens when we pursue after God. Hebrews 11:6. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is, the, is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So we need to ask the question, what is our great reward? Think about Abram after he rescued Lot, Genesis 15:1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. The reward was God. The reward was a relationship. The reward was fellowship and living and walking with him. And what did they need to endure? They needed to endure the persecution. They needed to be persistent in the face of persecution and difficult circumstances. When we look back through the book of Hebrews, we see that every warning passage is followed by a promise that is designed to encourage and prevent discouragement brought on by opposition of the dulling effects of time. Those who endure persist in a life of faith and obedience despite opposition from an unbelieving world. And I think today's world is becoming more and more unbelieving. The author of Hebrews describes the person who endured to the end as the one who has done the will of God. To do his will is merely to continue in obedience that comes from living in reliance on Christ and the salvation that he has provided by his own obedience to the divine will. Tim talked about this in Hebrews 5.10. We also need power. 
The trials or the sacrifice for the gospel often results in manifestations or power events or experiences of power. See, there's power in deep faith. Look at Paul. No matter what happened to him, he kept going forward for the gospel. He had deep faith. I wish I had that type of faith, but many times it's easy to get lazy. It's easy to get complacent. I highly doubt I could have persevered through what Paul experienced. We need to focus on the superiority of the New Covenant as opposed to the Old Testament sacrificial system. Some theologians would say that failure to persevere is evidence of a shallow, invalid conversion. If you look at Matthew 13 in the parable there. This may preserve the doctrine of once saved, always saved, but seems that it causes more doubt and unrest among believers in asserting that continuance, love, and godliness are evidence of a true conversion. See James in 1 John. The real issue in security is not the struggling, serving, worshiping believers, but the multitude of Western modern church members who have no evidence of faith in their lives. Easy believism, coupled with an overemphasis on security, has filled our churches with baby Christians at best and lost people in Christian clothing at worst. Discipleship and the call for radical holiness are missing in a materialistic, capitalistic, decadent, modern Western culture. Salvation has been turned into a product, a ticket to to heaven at the end of a self-centered life, or a fire insurance policy, and Tim has talked about this, against ongoing sin. Instead of a daily, growing, personal relationship with God. The goal of Christianity is not only heaven when we die, but Christ-likeness now. God wants to restore his image in mankind so that he can reach fallen humanity with his free offer of salvation in Christ. We are saved to serve and have fellowship with God. Security is a byproduct of a life of service, discipleship, and a relationship with God. Look towards the end when the writer of Hebrews is fusing Habakkuk and Isaiah, um, Isaiah 26, 20, 21, and Habakkuk 2, 3, and 4. And Isaiah is referring to the Lord who is coming to punish the wicked. In Habakkuk, it is a revelation of judgment that will come both to reward those who live by faith and to deal with unrighteousness. The Isaiah text has strong overtones to the end times as it speaks of resurrection and comprehensive judgment. We look at Habakkuk. In the context around what it, when it was written, he was a um, contemporary of Zephaniah, Jeremiah, and Nahum. But at that time, the Babylonian Empire was just laying waste to the countries around them. And Habakkuk saw what was coming. He knew the impending destruction that was coming to Israel due to their continual disobedience to God. Think about the challenges that we as Christians face today how we are the intolerant ones when we speak truth. Think about how some churches or ministers have compromised to avoid these challenges or remain faithful or remain popular. We need to ensure that we don't make those same mistakes. 
This passage also lends itself to eschatological times as it talks about the end. The writer of Hebrews sees a similar situation happening to the hearers of this message. Rising persecutions of the Christians in Rome. First there was expulsion and testing under Claudius. Then the extreme persecution under Nero and the threat of death resulted in faltering faith. The writer was sending a warning to those that were wavering or on the brink of wavering. But there's power in sacrifice. Think about Paul, imprisoned in Rome. He wrote his friends at Philippi one of his most joyous letters. Most inmates would find existence in confinement unbearable. But Paul announced to his Philippian friends that his confinement had actually contributed to the spread of the gospel. See that in Philippians 1.12. Soldiers, ordinary servants of the king, and many other people learned that Paul's confinement came because of a commitment to Christ. On the outside, this resulted in some of Paul's Christian friends becoming bolder in their witness when they saw God's care of Paul. Others, who seemed to be Paul's opponents, rejoiced and tried to add misery to his affliction. Whatever their motivation, Paul rejoiced in the preaching of Christ. What caused Paul the inmate to have this joy? What prevented his issuing a chorus of complaints about his lot in life? Paul would say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And power is perfected at the cross. The writer is is sending an exhortation or making a declaration that the hearers of the message not draw back or fall away. Rather, they were secure in their faith and power of the cross. The writer of Hebrews knew that Christians would find power in Christ's permanent sacrifice. He had seen the ineffectiveness of Old Testament sacrifices, as was discussed in Hebrews 10, 1 through 4. But he also observed that Christ's sacrifice produced long-lasting changes, which prompted new life in his followers. Christ's sacrifice demonstrated a chosen commitment to follow God's will. It was God's will that Christ go to the cross. His sacrifice did the job because it obtained forgiveness for Jesus' followers. And like the Jewish priests who regularly offered sacrifices, which did not remove the sin. Because Christ's sacrifice had power to change people, three appeals were given in Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. The people were urged to draw near to God, to hold fast to their commitment, and to stir up fellow believers to love and unselfish deeds. Some of these had considered turning away from Christ. They were reminded that abandoning Christ left them without any sacrifice for their sins. Those who left Jesus could expect judgment because they would turn away from the only solution to their sin. These readers had faced public humiliation, imprisonment, loss of property because they followed Christ. They had endured in doing God's will. God would honor their faithfulness. Only Jesus can provide struggling believers the grace and strength to move forward in unshakable service to him. We contrast the Old Testament law to to the New Covenant. The annual sacrifice only reminded the Jews of their sins. It didn't remove them. But Jesus' sacrifice represented a permanent once-for-all sacrifice for sins. 
Rejecting Jesus' sacrifice leads to judgment. Matthew 10.33 But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. And we as Christians need stamina to endure in commitment to God's will despite hardship and persecution. James 1, 2, and 3. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Let's think on what authority structure we use to make our decisions. Go ahead and put the graphic up. There are four quadrants to this authority structure decision table. The two vertical sections are divine and human. The two horizontal sections are internal and external. Most would agree that the Holy Spirit is divine internal and that scripture is divine external. Elements in the human external could be government, parents, legal documents such as the Constitution, pastors, elders, cultural norms, cultures, perspectives, or traditions. The human internal quadrant is made up of that very dangerous thing called emotions and conscience. So the question we need to ask ourselves is what authority structure do we base our decisions and beliefs on? To live a godly life, our decisions should be governed by the divine quadrants. It is easy to let emotions drive how we act. An example for myself, I talked about being in Iraq. So 2005, we went to Baghdad first. We were there for six weeks, and then we were going to move up to a place called Talifar, which was southwest of Mosul. And I was a commander of the weather station, so I had three other folks with me enlisted. And they sent an Advon team up ahead two weeks earlier before we were going to show up. And I already knew because there was an Air Force um, transportation officer, I was going to be sharing a trailer with him. And I'll explain the trailer in a moment. It wasn't a really nice place. But the enlisted folks that came with me, we didn't know where they were going to stay. So we get on the plane to fly up there. And we get off the plane, and we're looking for where we're going to be bunking. I already knew where I was at. And I found the Army guy who was in charge of that portion. Been there two weeks. He was an E-8, which for those that don't know military rank, he was one step below the highest enlisted rank. And I asked him, where are my guys going to be sleeping? And his response, I don't know. We haven't had time to do the inventory of all the trailers. And I'm thinking inside, okay, you've been here two weeks and you haven't done anything to get ready for the folks coming up. It wasn't a surprise the date we showed up. So wanting to be helpful, I said, how can we help you to inventory the trailers? And the trailers were 7 feet by 21 feet. So for the officers, it was one or two, and a trailer for the enlisted was up to four. So really spacious, wonderful living conditions. So he had these big round key rings with lots of keys on there. In each row, there's probably about 75 trailers. So I told him, I said, give us one of those rings and we'll do an inventory of the trailers because some were empty, some had folks in them, some were empty but had no furniture, i.e. furniture being a cot and a wall locker that was extended to the furniture. So we took about an hour, we inventoried this entire row of trailers. We got back, we're walking, and I see him still standing just talking to a couple folks. 
And at that point, I let my emotions, my human side, get the worst of me. And I was about 20 feet away from him, and I tossed the keys at him, and I let loose with words that I should never have uttered. I let my emotions drive how I acted towards this individual. It wasn't a proud or good moment. Um, But that's a really extreme example, but it's true. All of us as Christians can lose our cool if we're not careful. How is culture of false or watered-down teaching affected how we make decisions? A lot of us would be quick to quote John 3.16 and 17, but we need to go to John 3.18, which also talks about judgment. We need to be careful that we don't bring our presuppositions, culture, experience, and traditions into our reading and understanding of Scripture to the extent that it blurs the voice of God. When we do that, we invert the authority grid and either consciously or subconsciously God's word and the leading of the Holy Spirit are relegated to second place and our decisions and lives are driven by the human perspective. We are no longer living from a standpoint of authentic Christianity. We need to make sure that we are growing spiritually and that we haven't veered off the path. The passage in Hebrews 10.26-39 illustrates a community that had some people developing spiritually while others were not developing. The authors point out that progress in the Christian life doesn't just happen in and of itself. It's a product, product of an ongoing life of choices made in conjunction with God's will. At the same time, it's important to understand that each of us will have dry seasons. The danger is when these dry seasons extend to months or years. Second, we need to be willing to publicly identify with Christ and the church. When we look at this passage, how much of this passage indicated public identification with the church or fellow believers? It's a positive example offered by those openly professing their faith, faith as they themselves were persecuted for their faith. Christ called a discipleship has always been one that involves a great cost. For often being a Christian leads down a path of persecution. John 15:20. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. In 2 Timothy 3:12, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Was it may, maybe, its will. There will likely be a time that each of us must be willing to be counted with Christ or against him. And there's no middle ground in this battle. And trying not to choose actually is a decision. And that is choosing against Christ. Close with an example of the power to persevere through difficult times. In the mid-90s, Billy Graham's Decision Magazine published an article entitled My wife pushes me around. We may think, hmm, this could be one of those passages that calls us to extend grace. Reading the article, one would think that it dealt with a husband pushed around by an overbearing wife. However, if you saw the picture of the writer beside the title, you would come to a different conclusion. He was in a wheelchair, and his wife stood behind him. She literally pushed him around 
and he was thankful. Leslie Tarr was a pastor in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Tubercular meningitis left him paralyzed and confined to a wheelchair. He hoped for a miracle of healing, but it never came. Gradually, he realized he must live with this difficulty. The support and prayer of his immediate family and church family were unfailing sources of strength as he faced his limitations. As he walked with the Lord along the path of the new adventure, he found God opening doors of ministry for him. He found opportunities for Christian writing, for teaching in a seminary, and as an encouragement to others. He testified as simply as I can, as I can express it. I counted that he worked a miracle inside me. He did not lift me out of the wheelchair, but he has given the grace and strength to be thankful and contented in the wheelchair, to be grateful that someone cares enough to push me around. God's grace has met his needs. Leslie Tarr has found in Christ the power to persevere in the face of life's difficulties. God has given him stamina and the will to trust him. God makes his strength available to all of us who obey him and walk with him in the face of difficulty and hardship. If we are facing difficulties or challenges that seem insurmountable, or if we know someone who is, let us remember the power of the cross, which gives us the endurance that we need to live a life of sacrifice for the glory of God's kingdom. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.